looking at verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 9, that Psalms and Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 11, where it says there, Again I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of abilities, for time and chance overtake them all. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we've read of how the Lord Jesus visited Bethlehem. And we now pray that the Lord Jesus would visit Harbor Church. Come, Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, on Friday night, I was preparing this passage. Diane was off in Iowa. I was on my own. And at about 8 o'clock, I thought there's a significant piece of the sermon that I just can't grasp. So I went to prepare my meatloaf and my potatoes that Diane had left behind. And I turned on the television set, and it was the NCAA basketball tournament. It was round one, where the Big Ten champion Purdue was the number one seed in the regional. And they were playing the number 16 seed, fairly Dickinson, and I thought, well, check that off on the bracket. It's going to be a slam dunk. Purdue will trounce fairly Dickinson. But I watched, bewildered to behold, when I turned it on, less than a minute left, and fairly Dickinson was up by three. And then they sunk two free throws. They were up by five with eight seconds left, and fairly Dickinson won that game. The 16 seed beat the number one seed. You could see that the Fairleigh Dickinson players were absolutely ecstatic along with their fans and the Purdue fans and players were absolutely stunned. You see, the tallest player in the tournament, first team All-American, Zach Eady at seven foot four inches tall was on Purdue and Fairleigh Dickinson is the shortest roster size-wise, in Division Chapter 1. Las Vegas had 23.5 favorite given to Purdue. Never before was there such an upset, only the second time in NCAA basketball history that a number 16 seed beat a number 1 seed. Now to me, eating my meatloaf and potatoes, this was a striking providence. Because as I said, before I came up I was grasping for a suitable contemporary illustration of this text which says, the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warrior, neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. And there with this striking NCAA upset, the Lord provided a tailor-made illustration for us, a gripping event to introduce this sermon. Things don't always end up the way that we think they will. So let's look at this text then and let's unpack it. 9-11 of Ecclesiastes, we'll have three main headings by way of exposition, then maybe five by way of application. So come on with me first to the first of three headings, and that is a reflective inspection. A reflective inspection. Look, it says there, 
I saw again under the sun. This is Kohelet speaking, the preacher, the philosopher, the professor. He, he looked to and fro throughout history and the world, just like he had said in 4.1. Then I looked again at the acts of oppression, or 4.7, where he says, I looked again at the vanity under the sun. You see, he was an aged teacher, and he was consulting the reservoir of his observation experiences. He would scour the earth looking for wisdom. He would take in empirical data. He would gather it from under the sun. In other words, things he could see with his own eyes in the light of day. Certain common knowledge that would be gained through seeing and hearing and observing and then deducing inferences. So that's a, a reflective inspection. I saw again under the sun. Second main heading by way of exposition, and that is a frustrating observation. And here will be the bulk of our exposition. A frustrating observation. A phenomenon, happenings, that just seemed to be contrary to logical expectation. Certain surprises in life that just make you scratch your head. Henry, that Fairleigh Dickinson would beat Purdue? Who would have thought such a thing? Now just consider five frustrating observations that we see in this passage. The first is regarding the race. Regarding the race. I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, that, that swift-footed people may find themselves the loser in the race. You see, it's, it's not true that the fast one is always the, the winning one. It's not a law or a formula, nor is it that the, the swift never win. There are certain maxims or formulas like the area of a circle is Pi times radius squared, and you always get the right result. But when it comes to the winner of a race, there's, there's no formula that'll tell you who's going to win. The fastest man in the blocks or the fastest horse in the gate isn't necessarily the one in the winner's circle because there are variables beyond mere foot speed and raw physical prowess that are at stake. Bridges says this, the racer may take an incautious step. And this matches with our understanding of athletic history, doesn't it? You go back to 1972 at the Olympics. Jim Ryan was the world record holder. And there was going to be this face-off between him and Kip Kano for the gold medal. But in the pre-final heat, someone stepped on Jim Ryan's foot and he tumbled into the infield, and by the time he got up, he was about 50 yards behind. And Ryan didn't win. The race is not always to the swift. If Ken Cook were here, he would remind us of Seoul, Korea in 1988, when Carl Lewis, the fastest human, was in the blocks for the 100 meters, and he was going to win until Ben Johnson, the Canadian, passed him. And you can look at the dazed look on Carl Lewis' face that the race was not to the swift. Or even your own field day at school, Gideon, you can remember maybe when the fastest kid in the class, you thought he was going to win the blue ribbon at that field day run, but he missed a cone. 
And so somebody else, not nearly as fast, won. You see, there are flukes and unexpected turns in events that will confound the odds makers. And so he found under the sun, the race is not always to the swift. No, absolutely not. So we're looking at these frustrating observations. First, regarding the race. Second, now, regarding the battle. It says here, I also observe that, that the battle is not to the strong. And in other words, raw military muscle is no guarantee of success in the battle. Because many times, a great strength is foiled, and a small army overcomes a greater army. Go back to 1941, Pearl Harbor. You got the hulks of the American military there in the harbor, but it was the little mosquitoes of the Japanese Air Force that took them out, won the day, confounding the battlefield expectation of America versus Japan. Or, biblically speaking, you think of 1 Samuel 17 and verse 50. There's this champion Goliath. Who's going to win this battle? you got this unfilled out runt of a David. He's an inexperienced shepherd boy. And you got that trash, talking, taunter Philistine. He's the favorite. But by the end of the story, he's taken down by the underdog runt, David. Who would have thought this? The battle is not always to the strong. Or, or Judges 7, we see Gideon's 300 slaughter the Midianites, who are as many as the grasshoppers and the sands of the seashore. Or we even looked recently in 1 Samuel 14 about how Jonathan and his armor bearer took on a Philistine battalion, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Or Isaiah 36, the battle is not to the strong, as we see Sennacherib at 185,000 people surrounding Jerusalem, warriors against the little weak city, but one angel of the Lord, unseen, smote the Sennacherib's army, and the triumph went to the weak. You see, in every scenario, there's this unseen variable of the Lord's intervening and the Lord's intruding his hand, tipping the scales, determining the outcome of the conflict. So, so frustrating observations regarding the race, regarding the battle, now regarding bread. I seen, he says, that bread is not to the wise. Now, typically in life, it is to the wise. In Proverbs 20 and verse 13, it says, if you love sleep, you should stay in bed like a sluggard, on a, like a door on its hinges, so the sluggard in his bed, he, he doesn't go out and plant. If, if you love sleep, you won't have bread, it says. Or we see it says in Proverbs 28 19 that if you till your land, you'll have plenty of bread. But that's not an airtight guarantee, is it? It's not always the way that it works. Think back in 1845, the Irish farmers diligently plowed their land and they planted and hoped. And then they reaped not meaty potatoes, but instead black stones. Because in the ground there in Ireland, there was a, a fungus plague that destroyed the crop. 
But, but they, they were wise in planting. Or some of you, maybe you ever read Little House on the Prairie? Charles Ingalls and his family. And it refers to the 1870s in Minnesota when they planted wheat and the fields were swaying with a rich harvest until what variable unexpected came? The locusts. They ate it all and they didn't get a bite to eat because the grasshoppers took it all. And this goes even beyond the unexpected calamities of agriculture when it says the bread is not to the wise. You think of how in 1 Samuel 25, wise David, he's up in the mountains and he's starving up there while the fool named Nabal, he is in the valley below feasting on a lot of bread. You see, Yes, it's true that capacity and diligence and integrity usually are rewarded with bread on the table, but such wisdom is not always something that secures a full meal at all. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I was many times in hungers. In other words, many times I was in fastings, meaning it wasn't voluntarily, but the Lord brought forced fastings into his life by cross providences. And so it can happen to the hardworking businessman or laborer. So, so, these frustrating observations. The race isn't to the swift, and the battle isn't to the strong, and the bread isn't to the wise, not regarding wealth. And I also saw that wealth isn't to the discerning. Wealth isn't to those of understanding, at least not always, because understanding wise people may actually come to poverty. Just dial back a couple, three years ago and think of the discerning businessman. He had a maybe an MBA and he had entrepreneurial genius and he had a Midas touch, so he was promoted to be the CEO of Carnival Cruise Ship Incorporated. But what happened in 2020? COVID hit. And that industry, which was sailing high in profits, ended up sinking by this unexpected variable of COVID hitting. So we see that wealth is not always to the discerning CEO, but sometimes it's to the real simple. I read just this week of a, of a simple-minded fellow who lived in Staffordshire, England. He didn't have an MBA. He had no entrepreneurial genius, but he went into his backyard with a metal detector looking for his daughter's ring. And there he found instead a trove of 7th century gold and silver pieces, $5 million worth A very simple-minded man hits a fortune. You see, one commentator says, The Lord gives to his creatures in strange combinations. To some, he gives wit and no wealth. And to others, he gives wealth and no wit. As we see that wealth is not always to the discerning. And the fifth and final frustrating observation is, Favor is not always to men of ability. Favor is not always to men of ability. Now, usually it is. It says in Proverbs 22, 29, you see a man skilled with his hands, 
He'll, he'll serve before kings. He won't serve before obscure men. He'll get favor in the court, in high places, like, like Joseph. Joseph, the man, coat of many colors. He was a great supervisor and organizer. He just rose like cream to the top of Potiphar's house. You throw him in prison, but he rises like cream to the top of the Egyptian empire and ends up being the second in command. But that's not always the case. Think of how in 1 Samuel 21 we see favor is not always to men of ability. As David himself, a man of great ability, he defeated Goliath. He defeated Philistines. Did he get favor in Saul's court? No. Saul hunted him down like a flea in the mountains. But who got favor in Saul's court? It was Doeg. The man who slaughtered the priest at Nob, he was the darling in Saul's court. Scratching the heads, it's ridiculous. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. Stuart Olyot says this, In this life, there's no telling who will win or who will lose. People don't always receive what we'd expect or what they deserve. So, expositionally, we've had a reflective inspection. Secondly, a frustrating observation of these five things about the race, the battle, bread, wealth, and favor. But now thirdly, just consider a sovereign explanation. A sovereign explanation. And that is this. For, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, for time and chance overtake them all. That's why the race isn't always to the swift, to the battle, to the strong. For time and chance overtake them all. Now understand, this is not merely the pagan Kesara, Kesara, or it's just luck that determines things. No. Rather, instead, this is a, this is a theistic worldview that's coming into play. In fact, the entire book of Ecclesiastes is full of God and God's control over all Things And this idea of, of time, it says time and chance. Really, those words are teeming with divine theme there. Time and chance. Just look at the word time. See, see the idea of time overtakes everyone. It doesn't mean, well, eventually you're going to get the old maid dealt to you. And the odds are going to catch up with you. No, this idea of time, time has to do instead with the echo from Ecclesiastes 3. Look how this word time is used. It's the Hebrew word ayet. This word ayet, which is time. Look what it says there in Ecclesiastes 3.1. There is an appointed time for everything. There is a time for every event under the sun. Or even look at verses 10 and 11. It says, I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. So God is the clock director. God is the one who is orchestrating all times. You see, this is a strong declaration that God's appointment and God's ordination determines what happens under the sun. Michael Eaton says this, The seasons of our lives are in the hand of God. It says that in Psalm 31, doesn't it? Lord, our times, there's a word again, ayat, our times are in 
thy hand. Even look what it says in 9.12 of Ecclesiastes, right after our verse, looking at the context. It says, moreover, man does not know his time, like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. See, the largest fish in the pond. He thinks that he is the the king of the fish in that pond. And the little boy comes to the net and snatches him up and times out for him. Or the mother bird plants her eggs into the nest and there they are safe. And she flies off to care for them, to feed them. And a little net Snatches that bird, and the bird never gets back to its nest. The the fish is vulnerable, and the bird is vulnerable. They're just pitiable creatures, you know? That's us, too. We're just like the fish. We're just like the bird. We're vulnerable, and we're silly to think that we are the masters of our own fate because our times are in God's hand. You think of the I read years ago about this. This basketball player, he was a 17-year-old all-state player. And his grandpa, who was in his 70s, was in the stands. But who was it who dies? The 17-year-old is netted out of life and, and taken away. For, for time and chance overtakes all. The, the word chance is the Hebrew word pega, which means chance overtakes them all, uh, meaning occurrence or incident or happenings so what takes place is is, it's pega it's chance but it's not it's not lady luck the same word is used pega in first kings 5 4 where solomon says the lord has given me rest in my time and there is no incident in other words no calamity that has come no misfortune has come from the hand of the lord so this idea of time and chance has to do with the lord Doing something. It's even presented in Ruth 2 3 when Ruth, the widow, comes back to Bethlehem and no one cares for her. But it says there in 2 3 of Ruth, so it happened that she was gleaning in the field of Boaz. Well, by luck. No, the idea of the pega, the happening. The Lord brings about happenings so that when Naomi hears of it, Naomi says, this is the Lord's kindness. This is, this is God showing up in our lives here. Naomi, just like God showed up in David's life when he looked up the nostrils of Goliath. And God showed up in Gideon's life when he looked up out of that wine press. And God showed up in Jonathan's life when he looked up that mountain to see that battalion standing against him. You see, nothing is by luck. All happenings and all times are determined by the Lord. So the thesis of it all is, in this sovereign explanation, is that time and chance are sovereign providences. When we look at life and observe what happens under the sun, we need to know there's a higher hand than man's that disposes events. One commentator says, what is casual to us is counsel to God. So 
when you evaluate what goes on under the sun, despite the most thoroughly prepared schemes of man, God throws the most accomplished of us off course. No matter how capable a fish or a bird or a man we are. Matthew Henry says this, The issue of affairs is often unaccountably crossing to everyone's expectation that the highest may not presume nor the lowest despair, but all may live in a humble dependence on God from whom every man's lot proceeds. In fact, I was just watching the PGA Valspar. Diane was gone yesterday, and it's a golf event. And one of the golfers was interviewed at the end and said, well, he says, I know I'm in first place right now, and I've never won a PGA golf tournament. And he said this, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but maybe it's my time. And I thought, I'd love to put in a theistic worldview into that guy's head. That maybe he's just saying, if God determines me to win, then I will win. It's not totally up to me. I like that, because that's what's being said in this passage. I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the warriors, bread is not to the wise, wealth is not to the discerning, favor is not to men, for time and chance overtake them all. So that's our exposition. So having now expounded, let's draw some lines of application. Some lines of application. First consider on lazy presumption. The false inference of lazy presumption. You know, you can look at a passage like this and say, well, time and chance overtake them all. And you can just throw up your hands in despair and say, well, that means that my exertions are just irrelevant. I'm going to give it up to fatalism. And I'm going to reject the use of means. For if the race is not to the swift and I'm a cross-country runner, why, why train? Or if bread is not to the wise, why work? Why should Philip study for those Final exams that he has at Hope College. Or even parents can say the same thing. If salvation is not to the children of the godly, doesn't the proverb say, raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old he shall not depart from it? That's not really a formula that's clear. Why should I raise my children? Ephesians 6, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's just just what God determines if if God is bent on crossing our expectations what's the use in applying the means that increase those expectations but to come to that conclusion is to misunderstand totally because look at even the context look at the verse just before verse 11 which would keep us away from a false inference of lazy presumption look what it says in 910, whatever your hand finds to do, whether it be training for cross country or studying for an exam or raising your children, whatever your hand finds to do, verily do it with all your might, for there's no planning activity or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. In other words, what you do, do it very quickly. You see, this is the general rule as opposed to the odd observation that takes place. God, in all spheres of life, appoints means. But Manton, in commenting on John 5, 4, where, remember the man who was at the pool of Bethesda, 
and he, and he sat right near the pool. And the reason why was because his consideration was God blesses the one who gets into the pool. And so Manton says this, God has appointed certain duties to convey and apply his grace to us, and we are to lie at the pool until the waters be stirred to continue our attendance till God gives us grace. So when it comes to raising that little child that you have in your arms there, Matthew, you, 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 you dip his toes in the water of grace by giving him devotions, by praying with him at night, by bringing him to the house of God. This is where the river of the Spirit flows. He gets caught up in the great truths of the gospel which are declared in this place. And don't say, well, it makes no difference what I do. No, whatever your hand finds to do as a parent, seeking to lead your children to Christ, do it with all of your might. We must use the means in all endeavors. But we're never to trust in those means. Some parents trust in how faithful they are in devotions and how prompt they are in attending the I brought my children to the house of God. No, 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 no. Habakkuk 1.16 speaks of prosperous fishermen who would, it says, worship their nets instead of worship God. Now, what is a net for a fisherman? It's a, it's a means to accomplishing a catch. But what the pagans would do is when they accomplished a great catch, they would take their nets hang them over a rock to dry out, then they'd offer sacrifices to their net. When it was God is the one who fills nets. We should use the means, we should use nets in all the endeavors of our lives, but we shouldn't worship them. Parents, don't worship your devotions, don't trust in them. Don't trust in your bringing your children to the house of God. Use them, because God uses them. But worship God. He alone is the one who was worthy of our worship. Bridges says this, far from discouraging the use of means, God will only direct us to use them, but not sacrifice to them. And so we see here this idea of the false inference of lazy presumption. Look, come on with me secondly by way of application to this. Consider the, the crushing blow to carnal confidence that we see in this passage. The crushing blow to carnal confidence. I saw under the sun the race isn't to the swift, the battle isn't to the warrior, bread isn't to the wise, wealth isn't to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. That's a crushing blow to carnal confidence. Gordon Ketty tells us that when a triumphant Roman general returned from a successful military campaign, he might be credited with what was called a triumph. And if he was credited with a triumph, then he would become a part of a parade that would go through the streets of Rome. He would be up on a chariot, and all the citizens would be applauding him and hailing him. But always right behind him in the chariot, a slave was appointed to whisper in his ear, saying this, Remember, thou art but a man. Thou art but a man. And that's the impact of this passage to us. There are, in these burgundy chairs here, maybe men and women of action here. I know you are. 
men and women of great accomplishment. And we need to be taught and whispered to by this passage that we are in need of this kind of a, of a whisper in our ears. Because such people aren't necessarily in need of being told, apply more means, do with all your might more, but rather to realize instead that sometimes the ego inflation of our own accomplishments can cause us to fall off the left side of the horse. And we need to have a push to the right side of the horse. Instead of ego inflation, we need heart humiliation. So may it be that we would hear the blessed whisper of this passage, lest we think that our last accomplishment, if you're, if you're a businessman, maybe that, that last policy that you were able to sign and, and you want a big premium, lest you would sacrifice your net, uh, shining your knuckles saying, look what I have done. No, 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 no. It is the Lord who is the one who has brought you that catch. So if you've just achieved that goal, if your, if your child has been raised up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and he or she is a man of God or a woman of God, don't sacrifice to the net of your parenting, but rather credit the Lord. Bridges says this, Oh, Christian, do you find it hard to possess gifts and not rest in them? Sometimes our prayerlessness betrays that reality in our lives because we're doing, 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 thinking it all rests in us, in our tossing our lures and casting our nets, but are we praying, 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 realize that it's the Lord who fills our nets. You know, even, even someone who is a, I talk of thought, someone who may be a, a salesman having a problem with this. You know, preachers can have problems with this. A preacher may think he has a little ability to string a few words together without stuttering. And what's the danger? Falling off that, that left side of the horse as Herod had that problem, the Herod syndrome in Acts 12, 22. He spoke, and people said when he spoke, ah, oh, the voice of a God and not the voice of a man. And what happened to him? He was doubled over. He was eaten by worms as he was shown to be not a God that he thought he was. He was shown to be a little dirt ball, and he returned to the dust. I've told some of you about my own humbling dirt ball experience. When I was in seminary, I got some award for preaching, like I was something special, graduating. And then five days later, I preached at the Grand Rapids Church, and I fainted in the pulpit because I, I faint. Ask Diane. I, uh, I hit this. I fainted in the pulpit. God, God showed me what a dirt ball that I am. Nothing, and it was such a great advantage. The next year, going into Dayton, Ohio, my first year of pastoring, afraid that I would become the fainting pastor. So relying on the Lord instead of relying on my nets. Manton says this, Though there be a difference between the stars and the night, some brighter, some darker, some of the first or the second or the third magnitude, yet in the daytime they are all alike inconspicuous as all are darkened by the sun's glory. It's the, the almighty God's glory 
is that which eclipses all. And this passage shows it. Grace is not always to the swift. Time and chance. The hand of God overtakes all. We're little, tiny, purple, dory fish swimming in the aquarium of this world. And we can be snatched away at any moment. So in all endeavors, let us exercise a simple dependence on God. As if we had and were nothing and worship him alone. So, so thirdly, by way of application, we've seen... The idea of lazy presumption and carnal confidence. But just consider thirdly, there's a tender call here to contented submission. To contented submission. Some of us have a problem with submitting to God's sovereignty. Instead of willfully thrashing about with heart tantrums at crossed providences, we would be wise to resign ourselves to the divine will. Think of Jonah's anger when Nineveh, he was there under that gourd plant, hoping Nineveh would be incinerated, but God had mercy on Nineveh, and it was a, to him it was a cross providence. It's not what he wanted in life, and it says he was angry to death. Anybody in this room have cross providences? where like maybe you're uh, a young person here and, and, and you lose that chess game to your younger brother. Or maybe you're a businessman and, and you lost that contract to a rookie competitor. You know, it, it's important for us to, regardless of the cross providence, to always have this holy resignation, just like Eli did in 1 Samuel 3 where He heard about the calamity that was going to come on his house. He says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. This is a really important virtue for driving people to learn. David was a real competent man. But notice how David's road to the throne was crossed by many a hard providence. To the point where in Psalm 131 David says, the Lord has composed me like a weaned child in my mother's lap. And he had graduated from self-sufficiency, from tantrums, to having a resignation to the Lord's will. There are things, why did the Lord bring this into my life? Why did the Lord cause Saul to hunt me? Why did the Lord... Caused me to have this difficulty in the city of Nob. Why this long wait before I got to the throne? Because the Lord was teaching me a holy resignation that he is doing things that are just too wonderful for me. It's good for us to have in our minds, especially very capable, very gifted people, to be able to sing, whate'er my God ordains is right. Time and chance overtake me. Holy his will abides I will be still whate'er he does and follow where he guides. We should all seek to enjoy that blessed experience of, of totally spending ourselves to accomplish an important goal. And then when, by God's providence, it gets denied and frustrated, we having whatever our hand finds to do, we, we did it with all our might. We you ever hear the phrase, leave it on the field. Leave it on the track. Leave it on the course. Do it with all of our might. But then 
to be able to say, I've done all that I could, and I leave it in the hands of the Lord. Because lost races and lost battles can be very helpful to our souls. It says in Proverbs 16, 19, better to have a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. God brings us to a contented submission. So lost races and battles and riches have a strange power of reprioritizing our lives. Look at that. The SVB, Silicon Valley Bank Collapse. And what are the reverberations going to mean? Is Signature Bank the last bank that's to tumble? Remember how it says in Habakkuk 3, it says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, though there be no cattle in the barn, though there be no money in the bank, yet I will trust in the Lord. I will exult in the Lord, for he makes my hinds feet to walk in high. If I got nothing, but I have the Lord, whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Oftentimes, cross providences bring us to this point of a contented submission to the Lord. I just consider fourthly, by way of application, just consider the blessed encouragement, though, to courageous venturing. To courageous venturing. And this whole verse is so good for timid and fearful people who say, oh, I could never do that. Because this passage really teaches us, well, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. In Judges 6, the angel said to Gideon, he said, I'm the least in my family, I'm the youngest in my father's house. But the angel said, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Uh, Maybe David would have said, I'm an incompetent runt here as I see trash-talking Goliath. Listen, David. Listen, Gideon. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the warrior. So, There are some who are oftentimes fearful at venturing out. Why should I even try to compete against that team? We're just too small. Yeah, and Fairleigh Dickinson, they just took down the Goliath of Purdue. Or why should I apply for that scholarship? I'm just too mediocre. Why should I apply for that job? I'm too unqualified. Why should I evangelize that Goliath-like sinner in my neighborhood, in my workplace, in the extended family? Diane was just telling me as she's, she was on an airplane last night, and she was sitting next to a first person who was a, a, a doctor. And Diane began to witness to her. Now, you could be totally intimidated by, say, a biology professor. I'm just a, a little, little nothing runt against that Goliath skeptic. Oh, but the Lord is able to use runts to do great things. You may say, why should I try to pursue a maiden, a lovely maiden, a gifted maiden? I'm just too unimpressive. Ah, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Time and chance overtake them all. You see, a sense of inferiority and inadequacy is not always holy. We must always factor in the variable of God's sovereignty. Think of even Harbor Church. Man, it might be said, this little group of people, look at us here. 
we're going to do anything useful in Holland? We're going to be able to move mountains? Well, Henry Martin came to India in 1806, and he wrote this. Reached Patna this afternoon, walked about this scene of my future ministry with a spirit almost overwhelmed at the sight of the immense multitudes. In other words, he looked at his city in India, and he was almost nauseous with his own sense of incompetence. Yet he ran the race anyway, and he won a beachhead for the gospel, and millions in India have been saved as a result of it. And just just finally, just consider with me the constraining certainty of spiritual racing. Spiritual racing. Yes, it's true that there are many surprising outcomes in earthly contests. In that swift runners may be losers, and mighty warriors may be defeated, and wise men may starve, and discerning may go begging. But Bridges comments this way, he says this, but... There is no uncertainty in the Christian race. Run the race in such a way as to win the prize. Is it true if I, if I run hard in the Christian life, if I run hard after Christ, if I run to the wicked gate like in Pilgrim's Progress, if I flee the wrath of God to come, if I, if I run to the cross of Christ, is it possible that I could run in vain? Oh, no, 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 no. No, because it says in 1 Corinthians 11, run the race in such a way that you may win. And Paul, who ran the race of the Christian life with the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith, at the center of his focus, Paul says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, and now he's not going to be confounded at the end and say, no, what, no crown for me? No, now, he says, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. See, spiritually speaking, the battle is to those who are strong in the strength of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, then I am strong. Spiritually speaking, no wise man will ever starve. It says in John 6, 27, do not work for the bread which perishes, but work for the bread which endures to eternal life. So, there may, we may be confounded with what we see like fairly Dickinson beating Purdue or some kind of a brilliant entrepreneur losing it all. But, but no Christian will ever lose it all who banks in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful servants of King Jesus will never be passed by. They'll always be assured of eternal favor. You run in such a way, you believe the gospel, you fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll receive well done. Jesus says that we are not to be concerned. He goes to prepare a place for us. Don't be troubled in your heart. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go there to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. We know the destination of this one. Run hard away from self-righteousness to the foot of the cross. Run away from salvation by good works to salvation by Christ's cross work. Run away from fornication and hypocrisy to purity and sincerity. Run away from laziness and lustfulness to godliness and holiness. Because in spiritual things, the race is to the swift 
and the battle is to the warrior who will fight a good fight. And bread is to the wise who will believe the gospel. And wealth is to the discerning who has that wisdom which is the fear of the Lord. And favor, the eternal favor of well done, good and faithful servant, is to the one who is faithful. May God speak to our whisper into our hearts what we need to hear. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that this wisdom from this word would be timely and that each soul would receive it like apples of gold and settings of silver. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.